0: Hi, I'm Evan Martin. I'm so excited to introduce my co-host, Daniel Bean-Keyney. How are you doing today? Hi, Evan. Uh, Doing great. Just
1: a typical Thursday here in Brooklyn. Uh, Enjoying the summer. What's left of it. So
0: how about you? Um, Doing okay. Portland is having a heat wave next week, like 100 to 90 90 to 100 degree weather. So I am trying to pre-prep and get the dogs accustomed to being in the basement. (laughs) All right, well, this is our second episode, Uh, so welcome listeners.
1: Yeah, we're excited to be back, and we even have real guests this time.
0: (laughs) I know, it's going to be, and you can hear them chuckling in the background, they're ready and eager to hop on.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, let's get started and jump right into our Hot topic segment.
0: I'm so excited for us to introduce our first guest ever to the Wilshire IT Revcast.
1: Let's get started by introducing Jess Bowden, joining us from Allegheny Health Network, uh, where she's currently the Corporate Director of Hospital and Physician Coding, with 20-plus years working in the HIM field with a Master's in Health Informatics, a Bachelor's Degree in Business, and has been a RAC Region B Auditor. And I know we talked about this when doing a little bit of prep, you really love vacation, have a really strong belief in work-life balance.
0: Welcome, Jess.
2: Thank you. Hi, I'm happy to be here.
0: Ooh, and I get the pleasure to introduce my birthday buddy at the Wilshire (laughs) Group's very own Director of Client Success Services, um, Jen Krebs. She's been with the Wilshire Group since 2012. She specializes in project management around the mid-revenue cycle, primarily coding and health information. Um, She also has uh, re-engineered and optimized workflows at many of our clients. And really is a great, fun person to be around. So welcome, Jen.
3: Thank you so much for having me. I'm pretty excited. This is um, the first time I've ever recorded a podcast. And when we publish this, it'll be the first time that I've ever listened to a podcast. So
0: (laughs) at least you're (laughs) going to (laughs) listen.
3: Pretty excited. Don't
0: don't self-critique too much. (laughs) So we're glad that oh. Yeah, jump in.
2: I was just gonna say, on the other hand, I am so into podcasts. I listen to podcasts every single day of my life and I'm like a huge podcast lover. So this is so exciting for me. And <laughs> I'm really happy to be here. <laughs> awesome.
0: Well, we are glad to have you both and and glad you both wanted to come talk to us today about some of the great work you guys have been partnering around a uh, single visit coding or single path coding. I uh, see I still need to like get out of my daily job brain into podcast head. <laughs> um, why don't we have Jen give us a little bit of background about single path. And then uh, we have some questions and you guys can just kind of walk us through what you guys have been doing at AHN.
3: All right. Um, so single path coding is um, a 3M workflow. And basically what it is, is it is when um, you have both a facility coder and a professional coder acting as one person. So one person with both those skills, um, adding in both the facility and the professional codes within one workflow. So typically with an Epic, it's two completely separate workflows. You have your facility coder um, using the hospital billing coding workflows. Um, typically, with most organizations, that's already through 3M360 and Compass. Um, and then what most organizations have that are not up on single Path is they have their professional coders working in Epic PB charge review to review the codes there. And never the two shall meet. And so what we got the chance to do with 3M single Path is to cross-train um, a coder so that they know both the hospital billing and the professional billing rules. Um, and then they can perform the workflow as one within 3M, and we send the codes back to HB PB at the same time.
1: Uh, that was a, that was a lot. I'm a, I'm a billing person, so to, to hear about coding, it's always exciting. Uh, it sounds like a big change, and I guess Jess' first question for you: What made AHN decide to even look at making this change? Like, why would we want to make this workflow change at AHN?
2: I think it really boils down to three important reasons for us. One, denials have um, increased because payers have realized that physician and hospital coding do not always match. People tend to think of coding as very black and white, but it's actually very gray and up to interpretation. So to have one coder touch that is huge for us. So a decrease in denials. The second reason is staffing. Uh, While we have a very low turnover, we continue to grow and we also have a coding team that has a lot of retirements. I have people that have been working for me for 40, 50 years. So we needed to do something to supplement our current staff. And then finally, I'm like a big techie nerd. And so I always try to challenge myself, make sure I'm using the latest and greatest that's out there and encourage my team to use the latest and greatest technology available as well.
3: I think one thing that's important to add in about the workflow that we've been able to take advantage of is that um, it's specifically for or best used in a place of service 22. So a hospital outpatient, um, we do hospital outpatient surgery. um, And so we feel like we get the biggest bang for the buck there because we are, um, these are definitely Visits on both sides that coders had to touch, and even you have a third coder, you have an anesthesia coder if you're doing that in house. Um, So in actuality, it's three different coders touching the account. So with the single path, we're able to at least take, you know, one out out of the equation, so that we only have one coder doing the HB and the PB side. Um, We. Uh, 3M and Epic have not yet developed a way to incorporate anesthesia coding into the mix, but it's something that they're developing as we speak.
0: Have you guys applied this in other places outside of surgery? So like emergency services or those locations, knowing that, you know, those typically don't end up matching a lot of times either. And we're starting to see across the industry, a larger denial subset there as well.
2: We haven't yet, specifically for us at AHN, our ED coding happens by our ED physician coding is performed by another group outside of us. So we don't have control over that. So that's why we decided to go with the surgeries first, since both of those groups report up through me.
0: Very cool. What uh, is this kind of the path that other organizations and peers within the industry are moving towards?
2: Yeah, so HN is an integrated health system, meaning that both the PB and the HB report up to the single billing office. Um, and then all of the coding is centralized under me. And so across the industry, people are struggling with staffing. Uh, Most networks I'm in touch with use what's called computer-assisted coding, which uses natural language processing to auto-suggest the codes to the coder based on physician documentation. Computer-assisted coding by itself has increased coder productivity. We've had that in place for over five years now, and I think we saw like a 17% increase when we implemented that. So that was huge. That really helped our staffing. Um, So, based on that, at AHN, we use a combination of computer-assisted coding, staff, begging for overtime, as well as offshore and onshore vendors. We really struggle in the summers because, you know, people's kids are off and they want to spend time with their kids, so we use a lot of assistance in the summer to help us. So, anything that can help us um, is a win in my eyes. When I was
3: describing the workflow, that's the part that I left out is the when facility coding, so inpatient, outpatient facility coding, like Jess mentioned at AHN, they've been up for five years with uh, computer assisted coding or CAC, or you'll hear NLP or auto coding, all of those words. Um, you know, third party coding vendors like 3M have that technology. And what we do is we send the documentation um, to 3M out of Epic or sometimes from a third party, uh, another third party like probation for GI reports, for example, that lives in 3M and then 3M runs their auto coding, their natural language processing against that. And so for a lot of organizations that are doing that on the facility side, they've had that in place for a while. And then we get the advantage of doing that on the professional side within our single path workflow. So for a lot of these professional coders who are Um, we've cross-trained to be able to do this workflow, it blows their minds, right? Because they were using 3M standalone before, they um, never got the advantages of using natural language processing or auto-suggest or anything like that. And so it's a a game changer for the professional coding world.
1: I know you all both have alluded to a little bit of training that was done to prepare staff and the coders for, for this change. Uh, And I know, Jess, you also alluded to maybe your coders are in different places. Maybe there's some that are like offshore versus um, in-house. What what steps or prep did you do to make sure your team was ready for this change uh, at day one?
2: Yeah, I have to give the credit to my management team on this and Jen, because she's an amazing project manager, um, because they really make me look good. I get all the credit for it, but it's my team that does all the work. (laughs) So my hospital and physician managers, as well as my team of auditors, they prepared essentially a 12-week program. I think it might go a little longer than that, 12 and a half, 13 weeks, but it includes everything from coders shadowing each other because we pulled in HB and PB coders. So the PB coder shadows the HB coder, the HB coder shadows the PB um, coder to get a sense of what they're doing. And then in addition to that, we present on various, topics. So they're very different, even though they use, they both use CPT, they both use ICD-10. They have very specific rules and modifiers. And so we had to give education on co-surgeries, um, what type of modifiers the PB side uses to cancel procedures versus what type of the HB modifiers the HB side uses. So we weekly do the shadowing as well as an education topic. After that, we also picked out specific areas that we wanted to roll out, like who has good documentation, what are some easy accounts to get started with where we really have good opportunities to bring people in. And then after that, we picked a group of coders from each side to train. That piece has been really different than the other facilities and um, health systems that are using this. They have all either picked one group or the other. They've either picked HB or they've picked 8PB. For us, we felt like having that knowledge and having everybody on the phone and working through each person was paired up with another coder so an hb was paired up with a pb and then they work through a case and the hb coders were like well i see this this and this and the pb coders like i see this this and this and i think that's why we've seen so much success about it later on i'm going to talk about the productivity and i think it's going to blow people away the research that i've been doing on it um And then the final thing is that we've put in place standard operating procedures. So, okay, now we're up and running on it. Everybody is working, but let's create a document that they can all refer back to where frequent questions have come back and, you know, how do I handle this? Or how do um, I handle Medicare, assistant surgeon, what's allowed, what's not allowed? Just very different things for them from each side. And so they have a central place to go to and be able to understand what's out there and what's available to them.
3: And I think that's so key. I will say that of all the customers that I've ever worked with, and this is the truth, Jess and her team do the best job of documenting standard operating procedures and making sure that it's out there and available for their coders. And I think that that is going to be so key as we continue to bring on new coders, to have that not just in someone's head, but also have it written down that it can be referred to again and again. Because a lot of these types of situations that we've run across happen once every two to three weeks. They're outliers. So it's not like something that you're going to remember every single time. And those of us who are Helping the coders and answering questions, but aren't coding actually ourselves, are never going to remember it if it's not written down. So, <laughs> are
0: you guys looking at expanding this into other areas outside of here, like eventually bringing back in ED coding or any of that type of component? Have you started to evaluate any of that?
2: We have, we're gonna go live with our next wave in September and bring in our next group of coders and also add additional physicians to the group that we currently have. You currently pull it in based on the physicians. Um, and so we can vary, like we can narrow our scope or we can make it very broad. And that's why we've been looking at productivity to see like, okay, what do the current coders have the capacity to take on? And then what will the new coders have the capacity to take on? In particular, what do we do at first gen? I think ortho and what was the other group? Ortho
3: and vascular slash IR. Yeah. And we're looking to bring on bariatrics, some general surgeons and uh, neurosurgery.
2: And just so everybody's aware, those are the areas where I'm struggling and staffing. So why not, if we're seeing success, let's get some help in the areas where we're struggling. We have good solid coders, we just need the help getting the cases out the door.
3: It was surprising to me that there are outpatient neurosurgery procedures, but there are. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
0: Hey, Jess, how large is AHN for our listeners? Just kind of get an idea um, size-wise, and then also um, how many FTEs do you have reporting up through you?
2: That's a good question. We currently have about 10 hospitals, and last I heard, it was over 1,900 physicians that we code for. My staff is, I have 173 about it's about equally split between hospital and physician and then the rest of the staff is offshore they supplement us so about 200 is what we say it's a pretty big team
0: and before we jump into those stellar metrics um you know I know a lot of organizations across the nation still are struggling with offshore can you give our listeners a little bit of reasoning and and background what made you comfortable as an organization especially with um you know, digital, uh, many organizations facing digital malware and other, you know, breaches um, from offshore companies um, out there. Yeah.
2: So Epic is very strict about our offshore coders. They have, we have their own offshore template. They are only allowed to access certain things. Um, I think that's one thing that eases people's minds. Um, Another thing is the group that we're working with is very big on quality and communication. And that's huge for me. Like the same things I expect from my team are what I expect from an offshore vendor. So I think having that offshore template has eased everybody's minds. And then in addition, the relationship that we've established for them, and then they've also done some work for like our parent companies. So they have great relationships with all of us across the board.
0: Awesome, thanks. All right, well, why don't we get into those stellar metrics that you um, alluded to ahead of time and, and
2: well. All right, so the two big things for me our quality and productivity, and hopefully any coding director will tell you that's their two big things as well, um, but I just ran the numbers this morning to see where we're at since we started. When did we When did we go, go live with our first pilot, Jen? Uh Late March. Late March. Okay, so April, May, June is what we looked at, and we started out at 2. charts per hour. And when I say two single path charts per hour, it means four charts, because that means the person has coded the HB side and the the PB side. So you have to double the charts. We are now to over four charts an hour. We're at like 4.25. So when you double that, we're at 8.5 charts. Generally, a coder codes five charts an hour, So when you do all the math and break it all down, we've already seen a savings in these couple months of two FTEs. And just as we, because we've kept the group so small and we have very targeted areas that they're working on, as we continue to push them more into single path, that's only estimating four hours a day that these coders are working on the single path charts. So as their whole day goes to single path, we generally say a coder works six and a half hours a day because they have to answer email and follow up and do some other things. But once we get there, I mean, I can't even imagine what the FTE savings are going to be. in addition to that, I've seen a 25% reduction in the denials. There was one payer that specifically was honing in. They, they knew that the stuff wasn't matching. And so we've seen a reduction in those. So that was another big savings. And then finally, the quality. Um, we have a very strong quality program because to me, quality is better than quantity. And I try to be very fair when it comes to that. So right now we're auditing them, but it won't count against them. Eventually I feel like once we bring on the second wave, the first wave of coders will finally be ready to have their scores counted. But right now they're like no score audits. It's just feedback. Here's the feedback on what we're seeing. And what we've done in that area is because then we also had to educate the hospital and the physician auditors. So, The hospital auditor audits the physician side and the hospital side, and then the physician auditor gets on with them and they review the physician findings and then vice versa. So they're also sharing that exchange of information and making sure they have the knowledge and they're all on the same page as well.
0: Hey, Jess, in regards to um, you mentioning FTE savings, are you thinking about repurposing them or reducing your offshore activities or um, what? how is that going to impact your team?
2: Yeah, good question. I don't see any reduction in FTEs. A, a couple of thoughts. We have so many people retiring. Um, I'm Literally, we just had somebody retire after 50 years here, which is amazing. But I have so many of those people that have been here 30, 40, 50 years. So I think it will replace those people. And then in addition, we're growing so much. We We just can't keep up. So we have to, it'll make up for that, for that gap where I'm having trouble hiring people. The interesting thing is like, once I get people in the door, they don't leave. It's just finding because the competition is so fierce out there that you constantly have to keep looking. Um, so I think that it won't reduce anything because of our growth. It will just supplement us and help us out a lot. Jen,
0: what was the hardest thing from a project management standpoint to help the team work through in evaluating single path and then bringing them actually to get the staff um, engaged as Part of the transition.
3: Well, you know, it was. It's a very, it's a relatively new process, um, and so you know, I would say, and I, I don't have the latest numbers, but I would say at this point, maybe for the actual single path workflows, that maybe there are maybe fifteen health systems across the United States that are actually live, um, and I, I could we could follow that up with with 3M to get the actual number if needed, um, but. there are not a lot of health systems that have gone up with a full single path workflow and have a lot of the technical experience. And it's very, you need to have people that know the technicalities on both the 3M side and the Epic side. Um, And so it's a lot of technical details as far as interfaces, as far as Some of the interfaces are already there from your 3M 360 Encompass piece when you were live on the facility side. But we had to add a brand new charge interface, which is pretty complex. Um, And we were pulling the PB team from Epic, our IT team, into 3M workflows for the first time. You're pulling in an interface team. You have to pull in the people who manage your provider master file because you have to make updates there. Um, And so it's a lot of... uh, Of trial and error with some technical issues, and okay, has any go back to Epic and ask them if anybody has figured out how to do this? 3M, can you ask your other Epic customers this? And so, um, we've we've solved a lot of issues and we have things in a good place. We're still struggling with a couple of outstanding, you know, technical issues, both questions for 3M and both things that we have to work out on the Epic side. Um, we're feeling good about it, but it's it's a continuous thing. It's a bringing over charges and dumping them on the hospital billing side and the professional billing side and you know they're soft coated charges on the HB side and you know regular charges on the PV side it's a it's a technical feat and so uh, to get all that to time out correctly is has been kind of the thing that's taken the most amount of time but I'm happy with where we are and as we begin testing for our next wave, we have the entire month of August to test. And I'm pretty confident about where we're going to be for that. And I think the only thing that we'll uncover is potentially like differing workflows that the physicians do that we just need to accommodate for.
1: Jess, I have a question for you. Uh, on, the, on the coding side, were you able to gather feedback or uh, just like how, how they transitioned over to single path? What was the word on the street from those folks as their job role yeah. maybe changed a little bit? <laughs>
2: So I'm very big on my team being enthusiastic and then that enthusiasm trickles down like Jen and I have cheers and little slogans that we do. (laughs) <laughs> they really love us. but um, And it was the same way with 360. My team was horrified and scared when 360 came. Coders do not like change, which is funny because the codes change every year, right? And we have all this change, but they're like, no, they are creatures of habit. They get up at the same time every day. They do the same thing. So for me, when we, even when we went live with 360, it's being their biggest cheerleader and letting them know, I'm not going to let you fail because then I'm going to fail and I'm going to look bad. So that's not going to happen and so we kind of gave them that rah-rah let's go team speech right from the beginning they were very scared they had lots of questions they also tend to not ask questions so we really had to encourage that environment now they speak up all the time don't they like it was funny at first Jen and I we'd have to call on people like we knew people had stuff to say but they wouldn't speak up but now they speak up they're like we're seeing this um, and I think seeing like the organization from us and the time that we've put into it, they're involved in all of that. Like we are all dedicated. We're all part of it. They're on the calls. They hear all of the discussions happening. And I, help, I think that's helped that give them a sense of ownership. And they're like, wow, this is our project, and this is so cool. Like, when I said, do you realize, because they think they're still going slow, and uh, I, they're blowing my mind with the productivity. I'm like, do you realize you're almost back to where you were when you started just coding one chart? Like, you should be very proud of yourselves. So I try to recognize them. I try to give them the feedback feedback. In addition, Jen is such a strong project manager. I don't think we could have done this without her. She keeps us all going. She keeps us all motivated. She's extremely on task. I think whoever does this really needs a strong project manager. And I think that they trust her. They know that like, okay, we sent this email and she might not get to it today, but she is going to get to it. It's on her list. We're going to address it. And that has been huge for us, all of the trust in the project as well.
3: Ah, thanks. (laughs)
0: Yeah. <laughs> what's um, looking back as you're about to go into phase two, what's one of the major changes that you guys identified through, you know, your process improvement ideas that you're now making a pivot or a shift on um, from both a project management standpoint, Jen, but then just also from the operational standpoint from what your team's requesting? Yeah,
3: I think for... <clears throat> From the project management standpoint, I think it's the testing. So we heard from 3M that nobody has done testing as well as we have. Um, And the reason why is because um, I wanted to test with live data, live production data. And so what uh, the environment that we test in is um, CONV, which gets refreshed from for us, gets refreshed from production once a month. Um, And so it's quite a bit of work. And my my interface team really has my back. Um, I make them replay all of the ADT and the documents and re-trigger the charges so that we can get into the 3M test system all of our production type cases, because there's really no way to know what you're going to get. It takes On average, if I would ask the EPIC IT team at AHN to produce one of these cases, a realistic one, it would take about an hour's worth of time to produce one of these cases for the IT team. And so that was just obviously not an option, especially, you know, for our initial testing. So I think now we know exactly how to... uh, you know, replay the interfaces, we know how to identify the cases that we're going to re-trigger and all of that. And that for us was, was a big game changer. And I think made everybody feel a lot more comfortable. Like we knew what we were going to see. Um, I think we would have had so many more issues that go live if we hadn't tested with realistic data.
2: And I think that helped the coders because when we went live with 360 five years ago, we did not have that. We we tested in that test environment that Jen was speaking about and we did not have regular real life patient data and they were very uncomfortable when we went live luckily it went really smooth and we were there and that was still when we were able to bring in people in person and so we brought in people that we were over their shoulder so it was a very different environment than this where we're all remote um One of the things we've changed is some of our training, our program, the coders, we went to them and said, what do you need? What would you need if you were doing this again? And they told us that they would like more one-on-one time, more shadowing with each other, more walking through cases together and talking about it. So we created that environment. And then we also expanded on some of the different trainings that we were doing and also added a couple more. I want to say the first group, we only did maybe eight or nine weeks of training. And this one we added on like a whole another four weeks so that was a big key thing for us
3: and we're adding about the same amount of coders this time i know we have five live coders or we call them super users right now that do single path and i think we're adding six in september yes um and so i think like they all have a partner or we probably have one group of three but you know they they have a buddy if you will
1: thinking out loud are there other coding products that you'd want to see move to single path or are there certain things you just don't see a world where that could happen?
2: I do know some other groups are using it for different things, for some clinic type items. Um, what else are they using it for, Jen? I, we've heard things.
3: Yeah, that the, the, so you can use it in a non-single path. That So we're basically using professional fee in 3M and you can use it just for clinic visits as well. Um, so that's something that can be used. I think uh, Evan brought up earlier ED if you do if you do both of your PB and HB ED coding in-house. Um, I know that there's a, a customer that we' have worked with before at Wilshire who that was their first single path um, and it was very successful. Um, yeah, I, I just I think that these outpatient cases, um, any of these outpatient cases with the surgical component where we're doing you know the CPT coding on both sides um, is just the best use of our time at first, but I I'll be really interested to hear. And this is where you know, um, Jess is involved in like the three M you know virtual webinars and things like that. And just hearing from other customers about what they've done is it gives us good ideas.
0: So one more big question here. So going back and looking at it from a PFS perspective, or and, and thinking about denials and integration with other teams, how have is, H and leverage the single path and the documentation review from you know a hospital and a professional coder now touching it singularly and integrate with CDI on improving provider documentation in the long run for those uh, those accounts that still trigger you know additional clinical denial reviews.
2: Yeah, that's a really good question too. I told you, we like to be cutting edge at AHN and do things a little different. So my understanding is from other directors I've spoken to across the nation that they're using outpatient CDI to kind of review HCC coding and risk adjustment, those type of things. We recently just stood up an outpatient CDI program and we're taking a different approach. Um, My coders, or not my coders, my managers are going to meet with that outpatient CDI Uh, Every couple of weeks, and we're going to have coders take, you know, issues to them and say, hey, we think we could have coded this as this, but there's a documentation issue here. Can you discuss this with the physician? It's a little bit different, you know, obviously, because on the hospital side, it's the CDI touches it before coding does. On the physician side, they don't get those cases before. So it's really trying to get the coder's eye trained to say, wait, something doesn't seem right here. Something's not in the documentation that I think should be. Or, you know, they said they were going to do this when they were prepping, but then it looks like they actually did this. And then we're going to place the cases on hold, have CDI review them, discuss it with the physician, send a query if needed, and try to get the additional documentation added.
0: Before we uh take a quick break, because I'm watching the clock, the clock, and we're being told that it's almost break time. Can you tell us um what is one item from a project manager perspective, Jen? And then Jess, same question for you, but from an operational leader perspective, that somebody considering moving to single path should um put as part of their evaluation?
3: I would say from the project management standpoint, um, it's really important to have a very good relationship with the, um, your, your revenue cycle IT leadership. Um, So, you know, I had to, we had to, you know, liaise with IT and say, here are the people that we're going to need, and here's how much of their time I think we're going to need. Um, And I think that, um, when you have a successful project and it gets talked about and people can point to it and say, yep, you went live and um, you gave all these kudos to everyone who was working on the project. I think that is something where you will get the IT people who enjoy working on successful projects will be willing to come and work with you again. And so I luckily have um, a great relationship with the IT team and the IT leadership as Jess and, and, and her boss, Brian. Um, and so they, we are able to get them to come and work with us because we're very upfront about, okay, I'm going to be realistic. It's, it's going to take them about four or five hours a week for this like two month period of time. But then I'll be very cognizant of not pulling them into every operational meeting. And I'll be very respectful of their time. And um, we've gotten to have that really good relationship. So I think that is a key part of project management planning for a single path is, we really got to get ahead of it from I'm um, talking to the IT leadership team because we could not have done this at all without our IT counterparts. Like I talked about before, it's a very technical project. Yeah. And from my
2: perspective, a couple things buy in from the leadership. You know, I went to them. I said, I want to do this. They have had my back. They support us. Um, and then basically I get to go to them at the end and say, Oh, look how much money we're saving now. But and then in addition to that, time I mean the time commitment. And I had to, you know, talk to my team and say, okay, we need to be committed to this. We need to all understand it because the, you're also like in addition to the coders, you're teaching the auditors and you're teaching these managers who have been completely separate, HB and PB, and now they can talk the same language and talk to each other. So it hasn't been a huge time commitment for us, but I think well worth it, and we've you know put it at the forefront and said this is our most important thing, and I think having the support from the leadership to be able to do that, because we have gotten a little bit behind in coding at times because of it.
0: Well, with that, I think it's time for us to take a quick break, and we will be back. The Wilshire Group is a proud sponsor of the Oregon chapter of HFMA, who's hosting their annual fall conference October 19th through the 22nd at the Oregon Garden Resort in Silverton, Oregon. Come listen to keynote speakers, Ed Norwood, topic on Be a Giant Killer, and Prefi Fernando's Mindfulness and Self-Care, How to Slow Down in Order to Speed Up. These are two great topics in addition to all the other leading healthcare. Hope to see you there. Bye. And we're back. Okay. Jen and Jess, it's time to transition to our segment called The Debate. In
1: this segment each week, we'll discuss an industry trend or an out-of-the-box idea.
0: So speaking of out-of-the-box ideas, Jess, we heard that an AHN coding team has flexed time. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
2: Yes, um, and I can tell you when my management team listens to this, they're probably going to cringe. Uh, because <laughs> I call it controlled chaos. I We allow our coders a lot of flexibility. One of the things I love about coding is that I can allow that because we're not patient-facing. So I understand, you know, other groups can't do it, but I do allow it to the extent that we can. Like I don't put any restrictions on it, and that's where the controlled chaos comes in. Uh, to explain a little bit about that, a coder has to pick their start time. So say that coder says I'm going to work eight to five. If they are going to be later than one hour before eight, so if they're going to get on at 645 instead of seven, or if they're going to get on at 10 instead of eight, they need to let their manager know. So we have that hour of flexibility there. But then in addition to that, we allow them to attend doctor's appointments. We encourage them to go to their um, children's like school events. We encourage them to take extended lunches. And I feel like my team are adults they're responsible it's their career. they know that the rule is by the end of the week they need to make up that time and that they're responsible for meeting their forty hours of the week um We also allow four tens we allow people to start at three o'clock in the morning we allow people to start at three o'clock in the afternoon some people go to school some people have daycare issues where they have to start when their spouse gets home so it's pretty much a free for all but it's good. And like my people love it. And, and I also allow my management to do that too. Like they can come and go and do as they please. And I really think it shows the trust in our relationships with them. And we have great satisfaction scores from our staff. They are very happy. We have very low turnover except for the retirements. So I think it's working out really well. It It's controversial. I'll tell you when I go to like national events and talk to people, they're like, you let your people do what? I'm like, yep, I let them work whenever they want, you know, within reason. So um, I do know that not everybody in these positions think the same as I do.
0: How does that, how do you then roll out, like going back to like you're rolling out a single path education and that, how, how do you guys make sure that everybody receives the same set of education and that, you know, they're, Meaning productivity is easy to manage, right? But like, but really that education or having leaders available for team members, how are you managing that um, chaos for your management team?
2: Yeah, so particularly for single path, we've had a group that, Uh, Some of them start at five. Some of them start at six. So we have those what we call kind of core hours where we'll schedule meetings. We don't schedule them too late because they're gone for the day and we don't schedule them too too early. And we're already planned out like Jen's already planning our testing in August. So we give the coders plenty of time and make sure that, hey, we need to maybe have you adjust your schedule on this day. And they're really open to that. Same with the managers.
3: And I I think it's part of like what Jess is saying is treating people like adults. Like if we all know what's going to be on our calendar for the next week um, and you don't have a doctor's appointment or something, you know, going on, you, you can make, you know, you can change your schedule around and everything. And so I think a big part of that and Jess and her team are really good about this and we try to do it as part of this project is just giving people enough notice for things that they need to be at.
2: That's huge, I think, giving people, and we've had people, when we went live, somebody went to Disney World, you know, when she got back, um, she's like, man, I really had a great time, but I missed you guys, but we got her up to speed, you know, somebody just spends some additional time with her, shows her what she missed, and now she's up to speed and coding as fast as everybody else, and with this quality work, so we make concessions too. I'm not going to tell you you can't go to Disney World. (laughs)
1: Remind me, how long ago was it that you implemented FlexTime?
2: It's been, as soon as I came here, I implemented it. I've been here five and a half years. So that was five and a half years ago. And then when COVID happened, well, before that, I rolled out then everybody working at home. There were still some people that worked. People, I think I said peoples. There were still some people that worked in the office, and there were still some people that worked in the hospitals. So we moved all of those people home as well. And then when COVID hit, we allowed across the nation, you're allowed to live anywhere in the United States. So we have coders in Florida, we have coders in California, New York. North Carolina, South Carolina. I live in Ohio and Allegheny's in Pittsburgh. So we've also rolled that out as well. And I think we've seen a lot of job satisfaction because people are like, hey, we want to get up and move to the beach. I'm like, go ahead. <laughs> you know, you can work till one thirty and be at the beach by two. So.
0: <laughs> and are they working off of AHN's time, time zone or are they working off their own time zone?
2: We do require them to work off of AHN time zone. But luckily, because of that core time that we have, you know, the one person we have in California, um, our meeting is at our weekly meetings at 1030, usually for that group of people. And so coders are on at five and six anyways. And so that that's not a big change for them.
0: How how did um, HR take the implementation of flex time? I mean, I know that's, you know, another component with like OSHA and making sure people are taking lunches timely and, and their breaks and everything. And it, how's HR managing with that? Because you've set a precedence now, right, for yes. all of revenue cycles. So, <laughs>
2: They, um, they're very open to it. We, it's basically per department, you get to decide what you want to do. And so you can either work on site full time, you can work off site full time, or you can have flex time. So even our patient, like uh, billing and those type of groups that have to call insurance companies, they're allowed to be remote and flex too. They just have a tiny bit more constraints because of, you know, they have to be able to call insurance companies when they're own or when they're open, that type of thing. But I feel like they've really adopted it. COVID changed everything. Uh, You know, I think a lot of people had the mindset that you couldn't work remotely, you weren't going to be productive. You know, you can look at my my group, we've become more productive since we've gone home. I've done studies on that. So I think we were less productive in the office because somebody would come walking up to your desk and talk to you and sit down and chat. And We had all the food days that I miss where everybody would bring in their, you know, side dishes and all of that. But um, I I think you're actually more productive at home personally.
0: So speaking of that, you know, coding has been one of the first amongst revenue cycle and actually amongst the nation and most industries to move to remote, 100% remote work. How has your managers maintained you know, teams and inviting new people in and making them feel as part of the group and knowing their resources and stuff um, from that perspective.
2: Yeah, my managers are amazing. They come up with all these really cool ideas. They make me look good consistently, but it, cause you know, it looks like I came up with the idea. No, I give them all the credit. They're awesome. They do coffee corners where people join the phone call and you're not allowed to talk about work. We share tons of pictures. I love pictures. Um, somebody just shared their child's picture from their 4-H club with the horse and uh, in the little cute outfit. That was really cute. We share wedding pictures, graduation pictures we do recipe booklets so we'll put out like a fall recipe and everybody contribute and go make these recipes we do coder spotlights where we'll get a coder on and we'll interview them and ask them questions um we do games games are always fun i give out gift cards we have an office decorating contest called let it snow in the winter and i pick a new winner every year Last year, we had somebody that decorated their office in flamingos. It was really cute. It was like a beach theme. So I gave out a gift card for that. So just all these things that you used to do in the office, minus the food days, um, and just trying to keep people interactive and make sure that they're enjoying the work day because we don't always have to work, work, work. We can have some fun, too.
0: Very cool. I know one of my supervisors back when I was in operations and we were just moving that team home. They used to do arts and crafts Fridays. So they moved into arts and crafts once a month on a Friday and he mailed everybody the craft project so that they would do it on their team meeting, huddle for an hour and a half together as a group, and then send photos out to the entire revenue cycle of what they all accomplished. So
2: I might do um, that. I might steal that just so you know. (laughs) We did one where we had to draw pictures. We had something like that. And the other really, really fun one was we did Jeopardy and everybody had teams. There's a free Mm -hmm. Jeopardy app that you can get out online. And we wrote all these non, I think it was pretty much non-work questions. So it was kind of fun. Um, And the final team got like a gift card, but I like the craft idea. That's a good one.
0: All right. Well, we're going to take another short break and we will be back. The
1: National Association of Healthcare Revenue Integrity, NARI, is holding the 22nd Revenue Integrity Symposium at the Hilton Phoenix Resort at the Peak on Monday, September 19th and Tuesday, September 20th. From the Wilshire Group, our team members, Gretchen Case and Mark Wilson, will be in attendance. This is a great chance to connect with them and ask questions in person.
0: See you there. And we're back. And now it's time for the Wilshire Lab. Each episode, we'll explore questions submitted by our listeners. This week's questions, I think, are right up Jess and Jen's alley. So, uh, Daniel, you want to cover them? Sure. We're going to ask about Incident 2 billing. So
1: uh, just to start us out, what are some of the clarifications around billing Incident 2 in the clinic that you've talked about in your organization lately? Jen, I'm going to let
2: you take this one.
1: All right. It's her,
2: <laughs> it's her favorite topic. You guys, she loves talking about this. She talks about it about seven hours a week, just so you know. True story.
3: <laughs> <laughs> um, so we are, it's very coincidental that you would ask us this question because we are working on a huge project um, with our APP billing um, in the clinic at AHN right now. Um, And I think one of the the biggest things that we are working on both systematically and education wise is explaining the difference between incident two billing and split shared. Um, So split shared is no longer allowed in the clinic as of 2022. And so it's still allowed in the hospital, but people think that the two are the same. And so with incident two, um, what you have to have is You can have an APP see the patient by themselves, um, but the physician has to have previously established the plan of care. So it has to be an established patient, an established problem. Um, And the APP is really seeing the patient for what we would call like a follow-up visit and nothing about the plan of care changes. And in that scenario, the APP is the service provider. So the, the provider who sees the patient. But you can bill out under the physician um, because they are following the physician's plan of care and nothing has changed. Um, And so that has been a concept that we've been working really, really hard on education for Um, just across the board. um, We are we've rolled out new processes in. neurosurgery, rheumatology, and primary care. And we're getting ready to go big bang with all of our clinics, which is a huge amount of clinics, um, September 1st. Um, And we're doing new workflows to kind of make the attestation process for clinicians and the billing process behind the scenes easier.
0: All right. And I think we have time for one more question today um, that's coming from an organization's professional coding and billing department. What? dates of services should be used for professional interpretations of EKGs. Um, And when does the, sorry, my, uh, when does the interp, when the interp is done on a different day of the exam?
2: So in general, the CMS guideline states that the date of the physician review should be used as the date of the service as the date of service. And we've had to do a lot of education around this because I think it goes against what you would generally think. You think it's the date performed, but it's actually the date of the interpretation. And for us, we allow certain items to go out the door without us touching them. And so this is a big one. We have a lot of large significant volumes. And if we can get this right, then it can go out the door and a coder doesn't need to touch it. And it just goes through the system.
0: What, um, Jess, can you, I know you guys are on, on the Epic platform and some of our listeners won't be, but can you explain a little bit more on like how you've paused or held it just so that it doesn't, um, go out the door and create that in, inappropriate denial or inaccurate billing? Yeah. hmm
2: So we have a rule in place and for that series of codes that says, if this series of code drops into... Uh, a charge work you with a diagnosis, please hold it for a coder review to get that second set of eyes. Once we have a 95% accuracy rate, we've kind of follow the national standard of 95% for quality, then we feel comfortable releasing it. We still do spot checks and audit and review and look for denials and those type of things to trend and determine if it needs to be brought back where we're actually reviewing it. But it's been really successful for us releasing some items without review. Thanks.
1: Are we done for today? Is that wrapping up? (laughs) I think think those are
0: all the questions we have for today.
2: (laughs) This was fun. Let's do it again sometime on another topic. (laughs) Absolutely. We're happy to have
0: you back.
1: I was going to say, thanks, thanks, uh, Jess and Jen, for joining us. Is there a best way for listeners c- that they could contact you or reach out?
2: Yes. Uh, so I'm on LinkedIn as Jess Bowden. And then my AHN email is jessica.bowden at AHN.org.
3: And for me, same thing. LinkedIn, Jen Krebs. Um, and probably my Wilshire email would be the best way to get a hold of me. It's jen.krebs. Nope, that's not right. Stop. <laughs> it's j.krebs at thewilshiregroup.net.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Well, Daniel, Jen, and Jess, that's it for us today. Um, and we will catch everybody next time.
1: If you like today's episode, continue to join Wilshire Wednesdays.
0: You can follow us on LinkedIn
1: or find us on
0: Twitter at Evan underscore Wilshire. Daniel can be found at Daniel underscore TWG. The Wilshire Group is at TWG Health. For us on facebook at the wilshire group or on our instagram at wilshire it revcast
1: remember if you prefer to watch come check us out on youtube at the wilshire it revcast youtube channel
0: if you have an inquiry want to share your thoughts or get additional information on a topic email us at the wilshire podcast at the wilshire group.net
1: the best way for you to support this podcast is to rate review and subscribe we'll see you next time
0: Bye bye The Wilshire IT Revcast is hosted, produced, and engineered by Evan Martin and Daniel Bianchini. It is executive produced by Gretchen Case, Hank Smither, and Spencer Thielman. The Wilshire Group. Experience you can trust. Results you can count on.